Welcome to the Eyes Up Mindset Podcast, where we explore what it means to grow daily and find our best in every aspect of life. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Eyes Up Mindset Podcast. I'm John Shirky here with my co-host, Jamie Wagner. Jamie, bonus episode this week. What's going on? Yeah, we're excited to bring it to you. We had two athletes that we connected with that we just felt the message was similar but different. They connected. Um, both of them talking about how challenge and adversity has shaped their perspective, both as competitors and then in their lives afterwards. And this one is particularly connected to you. Um, who are we talking to this week? We got Seth Olson. He's my wife's cousin, actually. He played high school football in Omaha, Nebraska at Millard North. And then he went on to the University of Iowa and then eventually got drafted by the Denver Broncos. I got to see him play at all three levels. I saw him win a state championship his senior year. I saw him become an All-American at Iowa. And then watching him play in the NFL, it's, it's a little bit surreal watching somebody that you know. But he's got some cool stories, and I'm excited to share them. You know, you're talking about adversity. We had a little adversity of our own this week. Uh, when we were recording, your power went out. My microphone went out. It's been a good, good, good week for us to challenge ourselves and how we're going to respond to a little adversity as well. So I'm excited. Yeah, it certainly made the interview interesting and the editing process for you more interesting also. So you just disappeared for like 30 minutes in the middle and then came back, which you didn't miss a beat. So no big deal. Yeah, it's good. Grateful to have Seth on. Seth Olson, everybody. Certainly appreciate you taking some time to, to join us today. I appreciate you guys having me on. I've been listening since you guys started putting out podcasts. So enjoy the opportunity to speak with you guys. Was there a point growing up or, you know, whether it was in middle school, elementary school, high school, maybe it was in college, I don't know, where you realized that you were pretty good at what you did on a football field and that that might open some doors for you to do some different things? Actually, no, ironically, I almost didn't play football in high school and I rode the bench on my eighth grade football team. I didn't have a great experience, but I decided to give it a try in high school, just starting high school. Um, it also helped. I grew I was 5'11", buck 65 in eighth grade, and then uh, 6'2", 205 pounds the next year. So obviously that helped a little bit. I had great high school football coaches, and it was part of a great program at Miller North. So that really helped further my progression. But I wouldn't say it was until uh, I received my first college letter right after the end of my sophomore year, which was actually from Iowa. I remember you committed to Nebraska originally, correct? Yeah, so I got my first letter from Iowa, but I got my first offer for Nebraska. And I had a lot of injuries in high school, uh, so much so that junior year, uh, I tore a disc, but I played on it the whole season. Uh, so I, when I got that offer, I was like, well, I better take that offer because I don't know what's going to happen. Everything ended up working out with that. But then they fired Frank Solich, and I uh, decided to take some visits. I took a visit to Iowa, and I realized the coaching staff was tremendous. And obviously with the an offensive line guy with your head coach being an offensive line coach it doesn't get much better than that our head coach was an all-line guy and he kind of poured into those guys and you know having that family support system i know miller north has been traditionally very very strong i would imagine that's part of it right they, they make you feel comfortable and welcome and like everybody belongs sounds like that was something you longed for in the college recruiting process also, or maybe you didn't realize it until you got there. 
Yeah, I think uh, I, I wanted to be close to home. Uh, I never really wanted to leave the Midwest. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota, went to high school in Nebraska. So I wanted to be somewhere close to there. Uh, but yeah, that Miller North style of football, you know, physical, that was like, like playing for them is an old lineman's dream because we, kid you not, we only passed the ball 22 times my senior year. Probably the only passes we threw were on first down in the first quarter. So, but then going to Iowa, it just felt like a good program they had. And I know they got some stuff going on there right now that's in the news. And I'm glad that they're addressing it head on. And I know that when I was coming out of high school, they had some of the best components uh, that helped me be successful. And they have a proven track record, too, especially at that position. It, I would say that Iowa, and I don't think you can really argue this if you look at the numbers, it's really O-line U. And even though I wasn't thinking NFL when I was in high school, uh, they are definitely known to produce offensive linemen and send them to the next level. When does the light bulb start to go on for you to say, maybe I can do this professionally for a time? You know, after my junior year, I didn't have a great year. I played both guard and tackle in college, but I played tackle my junior year, and I didn't play very well. And had that been it, had I not redshirted my freshman year, that had been, and I probably wouldn't have, I don't know if I would have gotten a shot, but I definitely wasn't loving football at the time. And uh, thankfully, probably one of the best things that happened was that spring I got hurt. Everybody hates spring ball. And if they want to tell you they don't, they're lying because uh, there's no sight of games in the future. But uh, I got hurt, and that was a really good thing for me because it helped me to, like, oh, I actually do miss being on the field with my teammates. I realized how much I really liked playing the game, and then I started to have some success my senior year playing guard. And, you know, when you're on a team that is winning games, we were, like, remarkable. We were 9-3 and three in the regular – 9-4 in the regular season and then won our bowl game. But we had a really good running back who won the Doke that year, Sean Green, and who had 100 yards a game. And, you know, I know you might be like, oh, the whole line. Yeah, we, were, we had a good line, and we had some, we had some guys that played in the league um, – like Brian Belaga, who's still playing. Uh, but, I mean, Sean made us look really good. You know, I'd miss my block, and he would stuff the guy in the hole and run for 80 yards. So, I mean, he, he helped us enjoy some success, too. What At what point in your career did you become more aware of kind of the mental side of what it took to, to be an, an elite performer, which whether you classify yourself as that or not, you, you were, so – I would say it started in high school with that, that physical style of play that at Miller North, the way the coaches kind of drilled that into us. But it really developed and blossomed for me at Iowa. He all, they always talked about taking care of the only two things that you can control, your attitude and your effort. And that's something I continuously echo to my players as a coach today. The only things that they control, what kind of, do you have a positive attitude as you approach the game? And then do you give this, this all-out effort I think attitude and effort. And then also I picked up a couple other things like mental, uh, mental performance skill was, I think one of our uh, chapel speakers mentioned it uh, early on. Uh, we'd go to chapel the night before the game and he mentioned visualization, like seeing yourself making the plays, making the block, executing the assignment pool before you ever step foot on the field. And I use that throughout the rest of my career, even use it today as I, I'm a teacher now. And so as I try to like deliver a lesson, I might not, uh, you know, get up and speak the lesson before, but I kind of rehearse in my mind what I want to say as I introduce a topic. 
Uh, I would even say the music you listen to. Like, John, what kind of music did you listen to before you played a game? Either heavy metal or rap or, you know, something like that. It wasn't certainly wasn't intentional. It wasn't any kind of on purpose. It was just like, how do I get hyped up as much as I can? Well, I think, like, that's what I thought. Before my first uh, scrimmage my freshman year, like, I was in – I was they roomed us in the hotel during training camp with, like, an older player. And I remember, like, you know, he – He's like a junior and been through this before. But I remember like listening, you know, with my CD player <laughs> on my headphones, listening to like Corn and Slayer and getting this the night before, not even the day up, night before getting all pumped up for this scrimmage. And I played terrible. I mean, it was awful. One of the worst performances I've ever had. And I completely changed my approach. I started listening to Enya. I don't know if you know Enya, but it's very... <laughs> Soothe and calming, and and not not what you would typically not what you would typically think no. of a football player that you were listening to. No, I listened to that because it would calm myself down. Because like as an offensive lineman, it's a little bit more of a thoughtful game. No offense to the defensive lineman, uh, but I have to kind of think through it. And so I would do that, and then right before I went on the field, I put some up tempo gospel music like uh, Ezekiel Walker or Kirk Franklin to get my kind of wake me up from that slumber. Football is such a head game, and a, a lot of guys, I think, struggle. We see, I see this in high school with players. You know, as coaches, we might say this guy's a head case, and, and they have a hard time getting out of their own way, and so I think that's something that we could all struggle with. I think that's an interesting statement. Forever, we've, when we talk about athletes that struggle and we say, oh, they're a head case, instead of doing anything about it, it's just like, oh, they're a head case. They're, they're kind of a lost cause. We just kind of game plan around it rather than, giving them some skills to manage that. When you think about failure or adversity, how has that been communicated to you, how you should deal with that, or how have you learned to deal with those things? Well, I think a lot of people say sports builds character. And I think that's possible when you have a coach who intentionally builds it and, and does that sort of thing. But I think more than anything, sports reveals character. And nothing reveals character more than losing, a.k.a. failure. So, like, I think that's something that people really need to identify like, Hey, it's like, even like, I think it's, I'm going to screw up the person, but uh, like the IBM guy, I think Thomas Watson, I think is his name. Um, the founder of IBM. He said something like, if you want to succeed, double your rate of failure. Like I feel like you learn best from your failure than from your successes. Cause then you pat yourself on the back and just think you're invincible, which is not even close to the case. At each level that you were at, did you feel pressure to be perfect? Or was there a culture around, hey, failure's okay, we're going to learn from it, we're going to get better? I think, it, I think it's definitely different the higher you go up, because I feel like it's less okay to fail. Because if, you know, high school, like, you know, there's not that, the stakes aren't that high, you know? And then college, yeah, you're competing for playing time. So, I mean, even I remember going into my, third spring ball like it was my job to lose and I thought about it with that mindset it's my job to lose and I lost it you know because I, I didn't have the right approach but uh, but even then you're, you're playing time and you know you go to school you're most likely going to be there for four to five years you'll have time to overcome whatever failure you might have early on which, which I did but when you get to the NFL it's like you fail even in practice you could be gone like that like there's not a lot of job security unless you're like a you know, a guy with a lot of guaranteed money in your contract, which for most guys, there's none. 
then failure, you know, if I screw up in practice, like if I have two bad practices in a row, like it could be like, all right, see you later. We're going to get somebody else because they always are bringing people in to work out, not even just working people out, but like, oh, let's, there's like a rotating spot, you know, uh, at one position group there. I was just having different people in it. So I think the higher up you get, the more difficult. And then, you know, I think, you know, if you're in like the corporate world, I think sales and there's quotas to meet, it's probably the same thing. You know, that's something that we wrestle with all the time because you're, you're right. I think in that the higher you get, the, the more the expectation is of you to be perfect. And yet at the same time, we just got done talking about how, how do we grow? How do we get better? It's by failing, right? And learning from that. So it's a, it's a tricky concept to, to wrestle with. Yeah, I, I think too, especially like thinking about like as a, as a dad, like I fail every day. It's like every day. Uh, and I, I want to like hit the mark, you know, and teach my kids exactly the way to do it, like how to respond. And then I don't respond the right way. It's like, oh man, that's so humbling. That, uh, so, but I just think that it's maybe the, maybe thinking about with the mindset of like temporary failure is okay, but not total failure, like completely giving up. I'm not giving up entirely. I know that I can do it. It just might take me several years. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's about doing it over and over again. I think that's a message that we preach regardless of whether it's the physical stuff or, you know, dealing with your kids or, or these mental skills. It's, it's about the journey and, and continuing to do it over and over again. What's the most misunderstood part of being a professional athlete? I'd say like when you're in college too, like some people say like, oh, it's a job when you're in college. To be fair, you still like get a free, in the most cases, if you're on a scholarship, you get a free education, which is phenomenal. And you know, the price tag on those run pretty high now. But especially when you advance to that professional level, what was once your joy now becomes your job. And, and the stress of that, especially when you add, uh, I think when you're single, so I got married right before my senior year of college. And then we had kids pretty early on, like my, by my end of my second year, we had our first kid. And I think that added stress of like providing for your family adds a whole other layer to like, I really need to perform to a certain level again, coming back to that. If I fail in practice, I might be gone. And so that, that stress of having to always be on is really tough. And as a teacher, like if I taught a bad lesson or something, I'm not worried I'm going to get fired, you know? Whereas in the NFL, a very, very real possibility. Tell me about a time or maybe at times where you maybe were struggling mentally in terms of, I might not be good enough to do this, or I don't belong doing this. And, and how did you work through that? Uh, yeah, I definitely had those struggles. And, uh, you know, we've all heard the saying, like, life is, I don't know, I might have the percentages wrong, but life is 20% what happens to you and 80% of how you respond. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And like when you're talking about performing on the football field, it's definitely uh, challenging. It's a strong mental challenge when you're put on the bench. I think one instance that I specifically remember, um, it was a negative and a positive all at the same time. So coming off uh, as my fourth, you know, fourth year in the NFL, it's the 2012 season with the Colts. It's when Coach Pagano was going through his uh, chemotherapy with leukemia and it was a really cool season to be a part of. It was, personally, it was really tough uh, for our family. My brother had passed away that uh, summer before. So going through just 
the grieving process during the season. But I, the reason I love the Colts still to this day is because they just helped us so much through that process. But during that year, I tore my, uh, I broke my finger and tore my PCL in the same game. I kind of finally started to have some success in the NFL. I was a starter at the beginning of the season. I third game in that kind of happens. I finished the game and then I kind of get examined after the game and I find out had these injuries. Thankfully I didn't have to get surgery on my PCL. I did on my finger, which is kind of bizarre, but um, my only surgery, my finger. Uh, but, you know, I go through that. I get thrown on temporary IR, which is new. Uh, temporary injured reserve, which is new that year. Like you can go on injured reserve for like eight weeks and then get pulled off and still play in the season. So I go on that and then I get pulled up and I play my first game back. Uh, we're playing against the Titans and I play terrible in the first half. I give up one or two sacks, quarterback hit, and I come in. We're down maybe 10 points or something at halftime. And I come in, and, like, the lowest feeling when they tell you, like, hey, we're going to take you out and put this other guy in. And I'm like, you just kind of hit that low. And you're like, oh, man, this stinks. And then I come into the meeting room, you know, after I uh, handle some business, I come back in the meeting room, and we're about to do some, like, halftime adjustments and then they tell me oh by the way so and so tore their tricep so this person who we put you in for is not going to play their position and we need you back it's like oh you tell me i suck and now you're telling me you need me it's like oh that's such a hard uh left turn to take but i just thankful i was able to rise to the occasion like i actually played really well in the second half we ended up winning the game it was just for me it felt like a really uh maybe one of my favorite memories in the league of being, able, being told like, hey, you're not good enough and not feeling like you belong or you're, you're going to be up to snuff and then being able to rise to the occasion and, and come out ahead. I didn't, you know, I would love to be like, oh, yeah, I finished the season and started. No, I got benched the next week. But, you know, for that game, it felt it was pretty awesome. As you're telling that story, I'm thinking of you standing there and having a coach come and tell you, hey, putting this other guy in. And just the visual, if it was me, I'm thinking about my head dropping, my eyes going down. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, actually we're coming. We need you back. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm back, I'm up, I'm looking. I'm like, okay, here we go. And, and maybe that didn't actually happen, but that's what I was visualizing. And I think that's so true of life for us, right? That's, that's why we named our business Eyes Up. It's about living and keeping our eyes on the horizon or up. Well, because the stuff in life is going to hit you and it's going to throw you down. And you're going to drop your head from time to time, but not keeping your head down, not keeping your eyes down, but rising to the occasion like, oh, I got to, you know, I'm down here, but I can't stay down here. I got to rise up, bring my eyes up. Nice little ride there for you. Uh, and, and take the next challenge as it comes. Because, again, it's not about how you what happens is about how you respond to adversity, which you're going to hit so much adversity, whether you're in your career or in your marriage or in your relationships, especially as a parent, every day is adversity. So, so speaking of adversity, you know, you had some injuries in your college career and then you ended up having some injuries in the NFL too. And ultimately, you know, you retire at 27, right? 26, 27, somewhere in there. What was that like to transition from, you know, you're, most of us don't make career transitions that drastically change everything about our life that young. That seems like it would be a pretty pretty big cliff to just kind of be like, 
okay, I'm a professional athlete, and then all of a sudden I'm not. What do I do now? Yeah, and most people say when they leave the NFL, they retire. So it's really weird to say I retired. Uh, but, you know, I, I knew my career would end abruptly. Like, that happens to just about everybody. Like I said, most people aren't the 10, 12, 15-year with one team. Most guys have that abrupt end, whether that's after the first or second year, or for my, for my case, the fifth year. But I knew it would. So I tried the whole time in my NFL career to figure out what I want to do. Should I like try to be a realtor? I love looking at houses and stuff. You know, I even shadowed a teacher thinking maybe I'll do that. And I was like, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that, which is ironic. But throughout my career, I did utilize my platform to speak to a bunch of different groups of people. And often that was through FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So long story short, I officially retired from football and on, uh, I think it was like December 3rd-ish, 2013. And then right away, I started raising support to go on staff with FCA in Colorado, which is where we uh, had our house where every off season we'd live in Colorado. And so, you know, during my time in the league, I saw tons of guys like chase it, uh, being the NFL, chase it for too long. And there's a fine line between chasing that dream and then playing the right amount or the full extent of what you're able to. You know, I thankfully I lost my football weight right away. Like I went from 320, even like as a, you know, I was still working out with different teams. So, like, I go work out with the Texans at some point uh, it, that fall, and I had already started to lose weight. And I weighed in. They're like, you're 300. Why? What happened? You know? And so, anyways, I from that spring, I go from 320 to 240. And that's probably one of the best things I did. Not I obviously helped my health long term, but I probably would have been tempted to chase it. Uh, because late July, my agent calls me up and says, hey, uh, such and such team wants to know if you're still interested in playing because uh, they'd like to invite you to camp. And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 240 pounds. He's like, yep, you're retired. <laughs> so I kind of sealed the deal. I mean, it, you know, I can't imagine trying to play another position. That's not possible. And um, you can't play offensive line at 240. But uh, that really sealed the deal. And, you know, and then I, obviously I made another career transition. I did four years with FCA, and then I went into teaching. So. So you just mentioned that you shadowed a teacher and then you're like, nah, I don't want to do that. Where did that change along the way? I get that. So I get that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't really, I guess I didn't, not until I was involved with FCA and I was meeting with coaches on a regular basis, like because FCA and I know you guys interviewed FCA guy, your last episode out in Cali. Um, you know, a big part of what we do is, is minister to coaches and athletes, but we're with those, we meet with teachers so often. And so I got to know so many teachers over that course of time. And I really came to appreciate the impact that they had. Like I was over several schools in my area and I got to meet with different coaches and I got to be involved a little bit with teams, but to be on the same campus full time, all the time, the impact that you have is so much greater than if you're just there, like a, you're like a outside the guy or outside the school coach, or you're just there during the season or just there a couple hours a day, like to be around those student athletes and even the students who aren't, you know, your players, you just have a greater impact with them too, because they know you as coach. And so that you have a different level of impact there. And so I just loved that idea of having that greater level of impact and, um, and then I was back at my high school in Omaha, and I, my head coach, uh, Fred Petito, he's been at the school since it opened in 1983. I mean, that's 37 years. I'm not great at math, but I do know that. 
And I mean, the level of impact he's had on so many lives is just tremendous. And I don't plan to be teaching for 37 years because I that's just too long for, I got started too late. But uh, I mean, he's had so much impact and I'd love to even just have a, even a small fraction of the impact that he's had on, on me and so many other guys uh, is kind of what I desire. You know, I actually don't teach any longer. That's what my training was. And we started this business. And I, one of the things we struggle with is not having exactly what you talked about, being kind of parachute in, parachute out type people where we're now trying to teach and coach coaches about the mental skills. You know, like you're coming in to talk about what can be your impact in your faith and in your community around that. And we're saying, how do we grow you mentally and how to handle adversity like we're talking about to perform at your best. But I, I struggle with that same kind of concept because so many of the people in my life are college coaches, my high school coaches, the other coaches I've coached with in the course of my career. Like those guys have tremendous impact and have had tremendous impact on me and I want to give that away. But how do you do that in a, in a limited setting is an interesting question. And I think that you know speaks to what you're talking about where it's like, how do I have the biggest impact? How do I have, and it's relationships, it's connection. You're, you're absolutely right. I, you know, some of my best relationships were not with my athletes. There were students in my classroom that were vulnerable and came and connected in a different way. And it's, it's such a cool profession. And, and I think, honestly, the, one of the best impacts is the other coaches that you coach with. They are definitely, like, sometimes you wonder, are my athletes listening? You know, are they, and I think they're soaking in more than you realize, but your coaches definitely are. I think they're whether you're, I'm not a head coach and I don't really ever plan to be. I just, I like being an assistant coach and, and the camaraderie I had this staff. So I've coached, this is the fourth year of coach, but the first time I've been teaching and coaching at the same school. And we had six coaches that were all in and we spent a lot of time together. And I had never since retiring from the NFL, I'd never felt that camaraderie ever in the seven, six or seven years. And that I did this year with those guys. I think the impact you have on them is is just as great as the, what you have on your athletes. One of the big things I struggled with when I I didn't get to retire, I had to retire. I had to choose because they, they that happens to all you, of us, dude. They only give you four <laughs> years of college eligibility, but like those guys were a brotherhood. I really felt that way. John is the best man at my wedding. We own a business together, but that that was forged in plan and having to go through the challenges and the tough times. I think one of the challenges that men have, and I don't speak for women because I don't know, is that connection outside of competition, outside of sport, outside of like, how do we connect and have relationships? I, I, you had another five years of it. You're 27 when it left you. Was that a hard transition to have those relationship loss or that immediate family feeling because that's what team has always been for me and how do you try and capture that you talked a little bit about it with your coaching staff but i think it's men women regardless i i think it's really hard to make friends as an adult i mean with sports and as a kid you have school and you have athletics you have different clubs you're involved in but when you're an adult you know you're you have things going on with your job your family you know john's case you're moving around the country like it's tough I, it's but it's tough you know like we moved to arizona two years ago to be near uh, my wife's family they live five minutes from us it's awesome but it's really hard to make friends you know we 
one of the ways we did that is through our church. We got involved with the small group. I have my school, the coaches I coach with, and, you know, like connecting with the neighbors, but it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge it. You know, let's address it. Like it is hard to make friends as an adult. Yeah. Talking about relationships by design. Can you intentionally plan something to create relationships even when everybody's running around as an adult? Everybody's got family. Everybody's got work. Everybody's got something. Do you take time and get specific about it or do you just hope it's going to happen? I think that's one of my biggest struggles is like, oh, I wish somebody so-and-so would call. Or when you call getting rejected, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm not good enough. Well, like that's the same sort of stuff we deal with as an athlete. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I think it's kind of what John and I were talking like the failure thing. It's like temporary failure versus total failure. I actually, John, this kind of just happened. I never really thought about this before until this call, but like even in relationships that when you're trying to get together with someone, like I got a buddy, we, we love playing hoops together. We'd love to do that more often, but it's hard. You know, he's got three kids younger than mine. You know, we could go two, three months. We haven't played, but am I going to completely give up total failure? No, I'm not. I'm going to like, I just texted him the other day, like, Hey, let's, try and get together again and so you know as you're intentional with whatever that is you know if you have like we have a boat and in arizona that's nice because it's, it's freaking hot here and i love the heat because i'm not in the cold anymore but like you guys i know what you're thinking you know we get to go out on the water like yesterday we went out we had a fan like a friends of ours and they came out on the boat with us and you know it was just a way to be intentional to spend time together because it's hard to find time if you're not intentional. So speaking of that intentionality, Seth, what sorts of things are you doing post your athletic career to take care of yourself, to better yourself? What sorts of habits, things like that are you engaging in right now? So like for me, to, when I lost my weight, I, I, I didn't know exactly how I was going to do, but I did Weight Watchers because I figured it's been around for 50 plus years. It works for a bunch of women. Why not work for me? And that worked, you know, and so that kind of continues to like be like a healthy habit uh, that I focus on. But um, so I think the thing that I've picked up more than anything, because it's easy to like, and I've heard you guys talk about on the podcast, like about getting so caught up in the outcomes and the results and forgetting about all the small steps that come before. And that's the big part, like, because it's really easy to get like for me, even I'll admit, like I struggle with like body image, weight issues because I've been big for so long. I want to be, I don't want someone to call me the big guy. I want to call me the skinny guy, you know, and, but it's easy to get caught up focused on that number, but rather I've realized, especially in a lot, over this time at home too, it's about healthy habits more than anything. So there's this book I read a few years back by Jeff Olson. He spells his name the wrong way. O-N, uh, but it's called slight edge. And he talks about simply daily disciplines repeated over time. That's the success curve versus simple errors and judgment repeated over time, which is failure. It's not that you're not going to make those mistakes, but if you continue to let those mistakes kind of like compound interest with money, you know, over time, it's going to build up to the point where it's really hard to recover from. Um, and so just trying to practice some of these healthy habits. So like, you know, I have a Fitbit. So like hitting 10,000 steps a day or like, you know, you get those Fitbit reminders to move and, I do like 12 hours of reminders to move. So like if I move in 10 or 11 out of 12 hours, that helps, you know, or eating healthy, you know, I 
not that I don't binge eat every now and then I do, but not letting that happen over and over or continue to read books and like challenge myself with issues that I don't understand, like with everything going on, like the racial justice issues and that kind of stuff. Like I know that I have white privilege and I, but I think it's really important for us to like learn about things that we don't understand. Like I don't understand uh, what it's like for like my black teammates and black friends to get pulled over by a police officer. But like, I need to have empathy for understanding those really difficult conversations uh, because it's a very different experience than what I had. I think it comes down to like fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Like Brian Tracy has this quote, like there's no limits to what you can accomplish except the limits you place on your own thinking. So I think just always continuing to learn and to get better, uh, no matter what that might be for you. Well, you talk about the slight edge and seeing that like long-term intentional behaviors, you know, consistent discipline behaviors done over a long period of time have huge potential for growth. And like he challenges you read 10 pages of a good book, you know, just read 10 yep. pages of a good book. Like that changed my perspective. Also, I've always loved to read. I'm kind of like your son. I, I read, just lock myself in a room and read for days when <laughs> I was a kid. But now my goal for this year is 104 books. When I read that book, I was reading maybe five a year, maybe seven a year. And now I went to 30, then it was 50. And now it's 100. You talk about healthy habits, well, losing weight and doing Weight Watchers starts to change the way that you think because it's, oh, I got to do this every day. And now what other areas can I do it every day? I think, yeah, figuring out, and I think for everybody, the healthy habits, I think is a really good thing. I've talked to some different people that, just figure out what those are for you because um, they might be different for everybody. And, but, and don't make them so great that you can't accomplish them. Make them very, like what he talks about in the book is make a very doable habits that are easy, easy to do. They're, they're easy not to do. That's what he says, but they're also very easy to do. So Seth, this is another, maybe just a personal question for me, but I can relate to being the big guy. Running is not something that has ever really been a part of my repertoire. How have you how have you done that? And do you do you enjoy it, or is that just something that you've worked into your habit and your discipline? Uh, a little both. Like I and I like biking too. Actually, I recently uh, got a bike a few months ago, and we have all these awesome trails around Phoenix. Like we live in the city, like in the in uh, within the one on one loop, and so there's all these trails that are just. I can ride for miles and miles without ever having to cross the street. That's been really helpful for me. And, you know, I, I, I kind of love hate with running. I know it's really good for me, but I don't always love to do it. But it's easy for me to make an excuse for I can't work out today, but I live on an acre, so I can't really make that excuse. So I think you said something that you're like, okay, biking maybe works better for me. Running is love, hate, but biking is awesome. I think there's this thing in knowing who you are, like knowing yourself, understanding what things make you tick. That's not trying to like fall in line with all of the self-help stuff, not trying to fall in and say everybody else is doing this thing. Like what's good for you? When you were playing still getting to have conversation with you, one of the things that we talked about was not getting to do certain things. You wanted to go snow skiing, but that wasn't possible for you. And I don't know how basketball was treated for you, but there's a lot of people that as your athlete and you're training for something specific, 
all of a sudden you can't do the, all of the things that you want to do. How did you manage that? You know, I know some people that like grew up in Colorado, they would still snow ski from playing in the NFL. I still water ski because I grew up on the lake, but I remember I was in college and uh, my wife and I were dating and we were, I was back in Omaha for like a break and she was coming on the train. I remember sitting talking to this guy, there was like an hour delay in the train getting there. I was talking to this guy and I just started talking football and he had happened to play football at Oklahoma in the 1960s. I had mentioned like, or I'd been thinking about snow skiing. I didn't mention this to him, but I was thinking about going snow skiing that uh, spring, which not in Colorado. I was thinking about going to like some hill in Iowa. And he mentioned how he was on scholarship and he went to Colorado. He tore his ACL and he lost his scholarship, ended his career. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but yeah, I think like knowing like, to, to, to answer your question a little better, I think knowing like what your focus at the time is, what your goal, if your goal is to like at that time to have a somewhat lengthy career and have success, you got to say no to some things that they might be good things. And I think this applies to life too, like with your schedule and that kind of stuff, like saying no to good things so you can say yes to the best things. I think that's a really important concept for people to understand. Uh, it's not easy. And that, and that can even go to relationships, which is like a really hard thing too. Like there's some relationships, they, they might be good, but they, they might not be a two way relationship. You might be pouring a lot into that person and you don't get anything in return. I've had to do that before where you're like, got to step back. That's probably one of the hardest things to do is just when you recognize like, Hey, I got to do what's healthy for me. And you feel a little guilty in doing that. But in the long run, I, same thing with saying no to good things and yes to the best things in the long run. It's the best thing for you. How do you, how do you teach that to kids? Like you're a teacher. I was a teacher. Like we, we talk about this in our business is how do you, how do you prioritize? How do you say no to good things? Good stuff that's awesome socially, but it might not help your performance on the field. It might not help your performance in the classroom. How do we, how do we get that through? You know, if you're talking to another coach and you're having this conversation, what advice is there in that place? I'm not going to say like, I've got this entirely figured out, but I would say like the, there's a Ted talk by Simon Sinek. It's called start with your why. And I think that maybe with the concept I would lead with is um, figure out what's your why in life, or even just in that area, whether it's athletics or you know, business or whatever, like, what's your why? And then examine, like, hey, does this help me accomplish that or does it not? Because if it doesn't, push it aside. It's not saying you can't ever do it, just can't do it right now. And focus on those things that help you accomplish that goal. And it, I think, simply put, to start with your why, figure out if those things help you accomplish that why. And if they don't, then just put them on the back burner and you can come back to them later. Love that. That's, it's part of what we do too. You know, it's like find purpose, find deep purpose. And then that helps you make decisions. Awesome stuff, Seth. Thanks for coming on. Let's do it again sometime. You bet, man. We started the week with Noah Becker challenging us to think about if 
adversity is a barrier or an opportunity. When that adversity strikes, how do you deal with it? Seth brings us in to the next level. He says, when failure happens, is it temporary or is it total? We also get to choose that option. Are you going to allow that failure to be complete? And that might mean starting a new path. Or are you going to choose for it to be temporary and try again tomorrow? And as always, live eyes up. <laughs>